Hey creatives, you're listening to The Truth is Golden, a podcast produced by Revelator Studio and hosted by yours truly. My name is Arno, welcome to this episode. It is a show about creative minds, what makes them tick, their successes, failures, and everything in between. It is for people who are interested to learn more about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. In episode 205, the second installment of our series on LA Creatives, I interviewed Dan Brun, an architect, music, and Porsche enthusiast. We talked about his childhood in Tel Aviv and subsequent move to the States, as well as his travels, his design philosophy, and last but not least, his undying devotion to the Beatles. Check out our latest episode with Dan to hear his thoughts. So we're here today with Dan Brun, founder of Dan Brun Architects at his house in Los Angeles. Uh, thanks, Dan, for being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Pleasure to do this. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, I'm an architect by profession, a musician by, uh, who knows, and designer by love and passion, but it goes back to architecture as well. And I think those three really touch upon themselves altogether. Um, I've loved design and architecture basically, I think, since I've been seven years old in Israel, in Tel Aviv, is where I grew up. Uh, I was surrounded by Bauhaus. It's the, called the UNESCO World Heritage Site for, called the White City, for the most amount of Bauhaus architecture anywhere that exists. Uh, so I grew up around, you know, modern design, and I think that really became a natural fit for me. And uh, Legos were the beginning of design, and then cars, and drawing cars, and sketching cars. And then it was really cool to come to Los Angeles, which is, you know, auto mecca in a way. And all of a sudden seeing all these cool cars and things that I only saw in magazines. Uh, magazines weren't even easy to get of cars. And then uh, also the design, you know, so all of a sudden you're in Los Angeles and you're confronted with some great, you know, case study houses and also some terrible lookalike Spanish things and all these other things. And you're wondering to yourself, why am I living in a house that's super dark? Yeah, so that's me. So can you tell us a little more what you were like uh, as a kid? Maybe I would say cautiously adventurous. You know, I would get myself into trouble, but I also knew what trouble I was getting myself into. I used to love disassembling things. So my dad would bring over like a Sony transistor radio, and the first thing I would find is a Phillips screwdriver to disassemble it and to put it into pieces and not necessarily put it back together. Uh, and also when I grew up, you know, like soldering guns and like welding and things like that were readily available, erector sets, everything to tinker with was there. Um, I loved to, you know, paint on my own. I did that. I would spend a lot of time by myself, even though I wasn't like a reckless, you know, I, I had friends. Uh, so I definitely was uh, gregarious and had a lot of people to hang around with. At the same time, I also loved my time alone and I could just sit there and, you know, put together a model kit car or just paint something. Uh, and you know, I, I used to touch everything too, you know? And so my mom would get really annoyed as I would walk, my hands would like scrape against walls and scrape against plants. And I think it gave me like a good sensibility of soft and hard and cold and all of that. So at what point, um, did you realize you wanted to become an architect? I think I knew it actually when I was nine years old or like 10 years old, really, really a small kid. And I remember going to my grandparents' houses. And my grandfather's house was this uh, farm, I'll call it a farmhouse, but don't picture what you would think is in a North American farmhouse or a European farmhouse. It's a more like a falling waters, you know, long balconies, Bauhaus style type of a farmhouse with a underground first floor was all, you know, 
farm equipment and tractors, which is, by the way, how I learned how to drive at around probably 10 <laughs> years old, on uh, a Ferguson tractor. And then uh, I would start drawing floor plans because I was intrigued with the, with the indoor-outdoor relationship with that house. And also there were some like scary moments of that house, like the underground area, which I never seen in my life. You know, there's the stairs, but I never dared to walk down. Uh, so I knew, I think back then. And then in high school, there was architecture classes. So I started taking architecture classes and I took four years of that in high school. What was it? And, and some uh, actually industrial design, residential design and commercial design. And that's how it was kind of broken up. And I learned what was awesome was what a plan section elevation, interior elevation was how to use a scale, how to use everything by hand, you know? So I learned how to use pens, paper, everything, tracing paper, and how to build scale models. And so when it was time to apply to, to undergrad, I only applied for architecture programs. And then it was interesting because then I had to unlearn what I've learned in a way. I kept all the technical skills, but not all the design skills. It was really fun. So if we jump forward, um, mm -hmm. I guess, a number of years and the start of your, your firm or your studio, uh, what was your vision for it when you started? I was, uh, I wanted to make a difference. You know, I believe architecture is profoundly uh, socially connected and uh, changes the world. And uh, to me, Los Angeles is the base of an ugly city and it has beautiful nature, but overall the built environment is generally terrible with no urban planning to say for. Uh, and I felt that, you know, you can make a change in somebody's life for the better. And that to me was what DBA was to become, you know, and to, to take each project and to think about each project in unique and creative ways and to solve problems. And that's, you know, the studio was supposed to be, okay, so it's called DBA and it was obviously Dan Bruin Architecture, but also designing, design, branding, and architecture. And that's what DBA stands for. Mm -hmm. And it's a, you know, um, I love comedy, so it's tongue-in-cheek for doing business ads. And so everybody always sees the logo and is like, I know this name. And, you know, they're connected to it, but they're really not. And... Uh, that to me is what architecture is and we're trying to make a difference with each project and really taking on projects that are um, not yet, I would say, inherently socially conscious, you know, because we haven't done anything like social housing, we haven't done anything civic, but they are definitely changing inhabitants' lives uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's been 13 years since you yeah. started, right? So 13 years after you started, um, is that mission still the same or has it changed a little bit or have you do you have a plan to kind of accomplish it socially well you know it, the mission has stayed the same it has not changed uh i think my vigor and eagerness to do things has definitely changed i feel more empowered now uh i just turned 40 last week and i feel actually younger than i did last week and it's very interesting it was a, it was a hurdle to cope through uh, mentally, and now I feel very open and ready and ready to accept the world. And uh, we've changed things in the office in the sense that, you know, I never had a business development wing, and now we do. You know, so now it's like, let's be conscious about which projects come in. I've always been selective in saying uh, no to certain projects, but I've also never uh, actively seeked projects. So now we're doing that, you know, and so we're looking to do that. And it, it's a hurdle, and it's, it's tough because. Uh, you know, I did start my office, you know, 13 years ago and you do the math, I was young and I didn't, you know, I didn't come from the pedigree of, you know, working for the A-list architect. And so I don't come with that and I don't have a previous big portfolio to show somebody, well, I've worked on civic projects or worked on multi-tenant, you know, units, though we've built so many different things. Um, and so we're coming up with a struggle right now of 
starting with new clients and how do they take this dialogue? How do they figure it out? So the uh, going after specific projects, what kind of projects are you looking for? Right now, I think what we are uh, totally um, ready to take on and we have, like, let's say, the, the credentials to do. So we've done all types of residential projects, commercial projects, uh, hospitality projects, retail projects, public spaces. So like one of the things is uh, I'm interested in is hotels, actually, and then how they how they function. It's interesting. It's, you, you're taking care of somebody from morning to night and middle of the night. And so we've done all of the little parts of the hotel. We just have never done it all at once for one client. That's one part that I, I'm really looking to do. And it's actually been a, I mean, since like Ian Schrager and like the Hudson and projects like that in New York, I've always been enamored by them. And so that's one thing. The other part is doing, uh, we want to do in the future, like projects like museums. And so I think galleries right now, we're after, you know, after, after doing James Jean's house uh, and creating it as a studio slash gallery, I feel, uh, you know, totally ready to take that on. That's the next thing. Uh, we're also actively talking right now to some uh, developers regarding multi-unit housing. And really, I'm thinking about that too, and um, and talking to them too. That it has to work from the unit first, you know. So it's not necessarily oh, let's fit 50 units, let's fit 35 units. No, 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 no. How many good units can we fit? So let's think about the sun. Let's think about the, everything like that. So we're taking on designing multi-unit from the same way as we do residential single family, and making sure that every room is freaking awesome. So it's not necessarily a block, but it could be something else. And uh, beyond that, you know, looking into the future where I see DPA, like let's say this is first decade and a little bit more. The next I want to do, though I'm not religious, I would love to do spiritual places. You know, I think like something like a temple, synagogue, mosque, whatever. It's all about the light. It's all about the space. I think we, we've tackled that even in our residential spaces. And so to just make that into something bigger and more profound that you could share it with more people. Mm-hmm. So in your what, 15 years or so career, um, were there any pivotal moments? <laughs> there's tons of pivotal moments. And, you know, there's, there's so many changes and so many different things. Even when you have an employee leave, you know, you have somebody that you have invested in. And then all of a sudden, you know, they think, oh, I'm going to move some, do something else. That's a pivotal moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, how, do you, you know, how do you move forward to that? What I think is, is changed in me over the years is the fact that those things don't, don't touch me anymore. You know, I'm so used to it. And I just go with the flow. You know, it's, uh, I remember there's like a saying, like there's water and oil and you just let one another flow beyond one another. Don't fight it. Don't put up the wall and try to stop the water or the oil. Just let them stream. And that's been my, my mantra and it's been working. So there's been a lot of things, you know, but you know, you could start with, okay, one of the coolest things that ever happened. And I'm always indebted to this is the fact that I've been lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And, um, so one of the first projects we ever did was the Caesar Stone showroom up in San Francisco. And that one was literally uh, through a uh, product rep that I befriended while working in another office. And, you know, she called me because we were friendly. And I was always treating people with, you know, respect. And uh, then when that project got done, the client actually refused to hire a photographer. You could understand, and you know, they're like, oh, we don't need an architectural photographer. We have our food photographer. We're not going to pay X amount of dollars. We could do it for the 10th. And I'm like, are you guys crazy? You guys just invested half a million dollars in the showroom. You hired me to create the next best thing for you guys. That was the idea of the project. And I was sitting there like, oh, man, I'm screwed. And I remember in undergrad, I took architectural photography. And that was, you know, to give you like a sense of time. We did it with a four by five camera analog with, you know, it was a Cinar. And uh, with Polaroid, Polaroid uh, shots, you have to do the test exposure beforehand. So 
uh, I bought a used camera. They were getting cheap at the point. And I uh, actually took some 35 millimeter snaps. Now digital cameras were not yet good enough to do any of this. And I went to Sammy's camera, which is a local uh, camera shop here in Los Angeles. And they actually have like a few all over the West Coast. And um, I showed the clerk some of the photos I've taken. And I said, what do I need like for strobes and lighting to use with the Sinar, the four by five? As that was happening, he started questioning and asking stories. And I met my first natural client, you know, and she, you know, just came up and started talking to the guy and I was like, who is this person? And it turns out that she owned a piece of property in Venice Beach and was looking for somebody to develop that. And I was there at the right place. Where did you go to school? What did you build? What are you looking for? And two weeks later I was hired. Now the crazy thing about that isn't even that, that I was there and I got hired. You know, everybody told her, I think I was like 27. Why would you hire a person like that? He has no experience. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's never built on the beach. Doesn't know how to deal with the neighborhood council. Doesn't know how to deal with the coastal commission, all these things. I also wasn't licensed. I was just getting my license by the time the contract got signed. Mm -hmm. So I just taken my last oral exam in California and literally was like, oh my God, I better pass, I better pass, I better pass. And luckily I passed and I was licensed and signed a contract. And I remember at that time, that was the most pivotal, pivotal point in my career, I think. And I remember going to the site and going, oh my God, I'm going to be building a house here. And it was virgin piece of land, 40 by 90, right on the beach. And that just really opened up everything. Um, and more recently, another pivotal project, I think, was James Jeans, a friend of mine, was an artist. We did his uh, house, and uh, it was an original Frank Gehry house, and we renovated it. And again, it's one of those situations where uh, I felt a lot of pressure. People have asked me, was it because of Frank Gehry? No, I felt a lot of pressure because he's my friend, who I think is a genius, and he just let me do whatever I want, you know, carte blanche design. And uh, this was a chance to like prove myself. And it, it's been an incredible success, you know, for us. And it's been, you know, very highly regarded and it feels great. So let's switch topics a little bit and um, talk about cars. Because mm. you love cars. Where does that come from? It's design, you know, it, it's just like the, the motion of getting into it and moving. Um, also, as I mentioned at the beginning in Tel Aviv growing up, uh, the idea of spending money on a car didn't exist. It was not a, you know, I don't want to say socialist country, but, you know, it was not, you know, Soviet in any way. But the idea of opulence is definitely not in our culture. And growing up, if you saw the nicest cars were Mercedes uh, taxi cabs, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, that was a good car. There was one Mercedes convertible in my town, and supposedly there was one Porsche 911 in, in all of Israel. And then I remember coming to... LA and just being bombarded by cars, 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 you know, the car culture is definitely strong here. And um, not speaking English, I remember spending my uh, recess period of elementary school drawing cars and I became friends with this Japanese kid named Ken Takahashi and we would sit and draw BMWs, no joke, I mean, I remember the three series, the front, the drawing, the four lights, the kidney grills, I mean, I got that shit down, I got it down, down, down. And uh, I kept doing that. And then actually when I applied to undergrad, even though it was architecture school, all I had in portfolio was car design. I had an idea that there was going to be this, in one essence of my life, brune cars. You know, I mean, I designed the emblems, everything. I was like ready to go, the whole marketing material for it. <laughs> uh, that was what really what I was to become. And then at some point I was like, you know, the path doesn't sound that exciting. I don't want to end up becoming the guy who's doing the interior or the guy, that's a good thing or the guy who's doing door handles. And it didn't seem, you know, uh, too connected or holistic that one person gets to design everything 
and that didn't excite me. And I got to architecture, but then more recently, uh, you know, I started thinking about more cars and buying cars and the idea that you could actually own this item and hold on to it. And it's like an heirloom and pass it on. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the kind of way I think about it. So, um, beyond cars, you touched briefly at the beginning of, on uh, some other extracurricular activities that mm. you, you get into, such as music. Um, can you talk a little more about that and how they relate to your architectural practice or not? Yeah, I mean, okay, so music has been inherent in my life too since probably eight years old I started playing piano. Uh, I learned English, I should go back, a part of it is moving to the States, obviously, but listening to Beatles albums when I was a kid back in Israel, and I would sing along to Beatles and Duran Duran. And uh, I used to have this huge poster in my room of Duran Duran, it was probably like six feet, two meters wide. At the time, it felt like it was a lifestyle, I don't know, like huge. And uh, I remember my sister giving me uh, uh, Duran Duran's Arena LP and putting the needle down, like, wow, this is incredible. So music has always been something there. And then, okay, so I had the piano and I was learning to write songs and competing, blah, blah, blah. And then I quit. I was like, this sucks. Like, I'm sick of playing like classical music. It's not really in my heart. And then I was around 13 years old. My aunt gave me a uh, guitar um, for my bar mitzvah. And I started to get into that. I got a guitar teacher. And for the next five years, I took guitar lessons. And I was never interested in like uh, guitar leads or anything like that. I was always like playing music, playing the song and singing and then writing songs. And so in college and uh, beyond, I had a band and I would write music and perform. It was a lot of fun. And it was my chance to let loose. It's been my, like, my drug. Uh, even when I studied in Italy, the first thing I did was like find a classic Spanish guitar. I bought it, drove my neighbors crazy and drove my uh, roommate crazy because I would be writing songs. And when you're writing songs, you're singing the line again and again and again, right? Uh, and then I remember years down the line, I had a, a, an employer who said, Dan, you have to choose your passion. It can't be both. And I was like, you've got to be crazy. It's definitely both. And, and one of them leads to another. So with my music, I get to let loose. I've also met incredible people. I've also let me connect to people. You know, I've had now clients in the music industry and I could tell them, oh, you know, you know beyond the, the G chord, like how do you record on the computer? You know, and the, all, the, all the instruments and, and the, the tools and everything. And they love that. Mm -hmm. And just another way to connect to people. And uh, I can't ever give that up. You know, and I still do. Now I'm back at the piano, teaching myself a little bit more and more and more day, day by day. And it goes back to connecting to people. A few years ago, I did a restaurant and then all of a sudden you were with chefs and they're speaking completely different. So I took like a 20 week pro cooking class. And that also was a way to like, okay, now I got your language. So people really accept it and people respect it when you could speak their language. And, and it's, it's exciting too. And then when you sit in a restaurant, you know, I think architects, in the most part, they think they're a lot more connected to the world than they are. And they're very insular and they're just very pretentious and you know, that's all they do. But if you actually sit down and become, you know, like listen to Britney Spears or something, you know, like figure out what is the actual wor world. And so, you know, if I sit down in a restaurant beside looking at the design, I can look at the food and I can say, oh wow, that's like an emulsification and figure out what did they do here. Mm -hmm. And it's a secret and you could, you could respect people for it. Uh, I think it's important. So music, cooking, cars. Yes. Which one's your favorite? Man, that's tough. Uh, uh, since I've taken the cooking class, I haven't cooked. <laughs> that's the reality. Like I've cooked the same old meals that I taught myself when I was in Italy. Um, music is more of a day-to-day -day thing I do. And cars occupies my time. And cars actually, what's incredible is the community of cars is so strong. 
and I've met some of the most genuine people through it. And unfortunately, I cannot say the same thing about design. And whether it be because it's my profession and uh, people feel competitive, I don't know. But I, I feel like I could be a, an outsider in the car world, even though now I'm touching more and more about connecting to that too. So I'm hoping that if we you know, talk again in 10, 13 years, we could talk about the, my world and the car design. So that's, that's, let's see what happens. Well, you said a few minutes ago that architects are pretentious and insular. And even though this is a broad generalization, I, mm. I think it's very true. And I think one of the biggest challenges of the industry is the inability to genuinely connect with people outside of that industry. I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's you know, and, and I read about it all the time. How do we connect? How do we connect? Stop being such nerds. You know, don't, when you go travel to Madrid, don't just go to museums. You know, don't just go find your most important architecture piece. What would a tourist do? Try to do that. Try to connect to people that way. It's so important. And if you do that, then you could design for that. And then you're becoming a better designer anyways. So I think, you know, it's, it's been interesting because it's, it's led me astray from the world of architecture. And so when somebody says, hey, do you know this next competition? Or, you know, I don't know. Because I'm not, I'm an outsider in a way. Mm -hmm. And I keep my foot in the door. At the same time, I want to be on that level, right? Like I want to be invited to that competition. But um, I don't know. I'm going to continue to do this. It's funny what you said about uh, not being architecture nerds when they're traveling and just going to see beautiful architecture because ever since I stopped being an architect and designing and not working in an office, I don't have that, uh, as much a drive to go see architecture. Mm -hmm. I enjoy it. Yeah. It's not, no, it's great. I love doing other things. I Absolutely. love surfing, riding motorcycles, going to restaurants, meeting people. Yeah. It's so much more fun. There's so much more fun in architecture. Then you realize the architecture is important, but it's not at the forefront. It's almost architecture is just like in the movie, right? It's not the actor. It's not the protagonist, but it carries the movie through. Mm -hmm. So it's important to realize that, yeah, we're very important and we are the built world and we want to be remembered as all of this stuff, but we are, uh, we are also, also behind the scenes and most people never study architecture and they won't understand what you're saying. So the architecture has to be very, uh, how, how can I say, dumbed down to be good architecture, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, you know, if, if you ask me like, my, my day-to-day -day on the office, what do I do? I'm actually editing, you know? So I'm, I'll be sitting there and thinking, how do I reduce this? And it's the same thing, I guess, in cooking, right? Like a reduction, you know? How do I reduce this to the essence? Reduce, 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 reduce. So that it, if somebody goes in there and they're not trained in anything, they'll be like, ah, wow, I feel it. I feel that, I feel mm -hmm. that strength. I feel whatever is there, so. So when you say editing, do you mean editing the design or editing the way you communicate about the design? No, oh, there's both. There's both. I mean, it's definitely, uh, okay. So, uh, I, I, at the office I'm editing the design, right? So it's usually like remove, remove, we don't need this. And the way I always say it is that's a great move and we could use that somewhere else, you know, not necessarily in this project, just keep that in the library. Uh, don't think it's dead. You know, one of the things that I learned early on was, uh, to not hold things so precious. And when it comes to design, there's always something else There's always going to be something better. So let it go, let it go. You're not that good. You know, uh, and in terms of editing what I say, I have a lot of passion for my projects and I think I know how to do something down and read my audience and to, you know, nail it really quickly. Mm -hmm. What would be your biggest influences in architecture and outside of architecture? Okay. So before going to, to undergrad, you know, I would be looking at the typical, what everybody would say is Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, that's, that's what everybody knows. Then I got into undergrad and I started to look at like Corbusier, which is super important to me. And, you know, his contemporary would be uh, Richard Meyer. 
and then I found Dutch architecture, you know, MVRDV, Rem Cool House. Rem has been an amazing inspiration for me uh, through many years. Uh, Herzog and Demeron, insane, you know, and, and what I love about them is that there's not a project that looks the same, you know, you can kind of always deduce that it was theirs, but not necessarily, the, oh, it's repetitive like Frank Gehry, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so th those would be my, my, my gods, Oscar Niemeyer too, you know, like the, the way that he uses, uh, singular materials to, to do space in such a quick way is just so important. It is amazing. Uh, those are my, are my design gods, uh, music is the Beatles, the Beatles, the Beatles and the Beatles, you know, uh, I grew up with this and uh, I love it and I could still put my headphones on and find something else. And it's like, wow. Um, Recently, there's on uh, XM Radio, there's the Beatles station, and I just love it. You know, it's not only the music, it's the interviews and things like that. Mm -hmm. And you listen to it, and you know, I'm still blown away after all these years. We can get to the Beatles a little later. Okay. Um, <laughs> do you have any mentors? It's a good question. It's, a, it's a, Unfortunately, no. Uh, and I try to mentor to other people, and I try to keep that door open. Uh, recently, uh, we were exhibiting a dwell on design, and somebody came up to me and said, I didn't realize you'd be this down to earth, open and cool. And I hope more people realize that that is important. Uh, what I've seen is that I've gotten glimpses of mentorship, but I've also seen that in the design world, it's so closed and everybody holds their cards so close to them mm -hmm. and nobody wants to share. And I think that's complete bullshit. And uh, it's made it so difficult, you know, uh, just to, in order to grow my own office. I had great teachers. I had great uh, uh, people to aspire to while going to school and I had amazing employers that taught me everything and I wish that they would stay as, you know, we could say like, oh, they've mentored me throughout, mm -hmm. but somehow that relationships change mm -hmm. and uh, it's difficult. I, I, I really wish that there was somebody that could be like, ring the phone and say, hey, I'm stuck here right now. Like, what do I do? And I've been trying to build that network. And I've been trying to also, as I'm saying that, I've been trying to open that door to other people that are younger and say, Dan, what was the hardship? And I don't think architects do that. I don't think architects, if you interview, I don't know, will say, what was the hardship of starting your office? What was the hardship of getting to where you are? It wasn't easy. Like, it's bullshit. Don't, don't pretend like it was. So tell somebody, what was, what, was, what was it that was so hard? Or how did you overcome it? Mm -hmm. Financially. Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll get back to that in mm -hmm. a couple minutes because I have questions relating to the, those particular issues. Uh, I want to talk a little more about Los Angeles. Yes. And um, can you tell us a little more how you ended up here? Because you came here really Yeah, early. I came here when I was eight years old. I came here with my parents in second grade. Uh, it wasn't my choice, you know. Uh, I think it was the best blessing ever. But at the time, it was one of the hardest things. So my dad got relocated for work here. My dad did undergrad and grad school here in the 60s. So in a way, it was like connected back to himself, which mm -hmm. was really cool. Like knowing that my dad was here during that time, a hippie, and I've seen photos. And he actually was obsessed with cars too. He had his like, oh, this was my, you know, my Chevy, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, cool. Um, so I ended up here. I struggled hard. And it was one of the best things ever because I had to learn a language. Yes, I was young. Everybody's like, oh, it's so easy. You learn it so quick. Again. You do, but it's also very hard on a child, and it's also very hard. You lose your friends. Um, I was dressed differently. Everybody had like MC Hammer, big ass, baggy pants. I was, I looked like an English uh, student, you know, like pupil. I had like my penny loafers. That I was finally able to put a real penny in. Uh, I had, uh, you know, tight pants, all that, you know, completely different. Mm -hmm. So that was really difficult. 
And that's how I ended up here. And I never actually, the funny thing is, okay, so when I went to grad school and I lived in Italy and I lived in London, I never thought I would be back here. And uh, through whatever it is that happened, I'm back here. And it's, uh, it's been the best. It's been really the best. So uh, I'm interested in those uh, European adventures. Can, mm. you, uh, can you speak to that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I mean, so during uh, my, okay, so one of the coolest things is, you know, my parents, instead of taking us to whatever, a lot of LA kids go to Hawaii their whole life or Las Vegas. <laughs> we ended up, you know, taking road trips to San Francisco, beyond to New York, and then to Europe. And, uh, you know, it's always been interesting to me. And, you know, obviously Israel, you know, it's not too far uh, from Europe. And uh, I spent my, up until I was 18, actually, every single summer in, in Israel. And uh, that actually taught me a lot, you know, and it made me, I don't even know what the word is, but I'm definitely not planted as American. I'm definitely not planted as Israeli. I'm definitely not planted as European. I'm somewhere between all of them. And then I, uh, at USC, I did a program to Italy. And I felt like home. I felt like somewhere, and again, somewhere between the social network of Israel and the home and the feeling of uh, uh, family, um, that is important, like Israel. And yet, you know, design and everything is a little bit more sophisticated. I, I loved it. And I spent a few years there and I tried, you know, I learned the language, uh, had a girlfriend, tried to open that world up. And uh, I was completely let down when I was at Harvard and I had tried to get an internship in Italy and uh, it just didn't happen. You know, and I tried, not in architecture, I wanted to learn a furniture design. Mm -hmm. And basically their world is so closed, they basically said, you know, no. And it's literally because of, you know, a closed network. Mm -hmm. And I felt really sad, you know, and it's a family oriented business. And granted, if I went to architecture, no problem, but in the, in the, arch in the, in the uh, furniture world, that didn't open up and that door was closed. Then I spent a little bit of time in, uh, in uh, England and I felt, uh, actually I felt immediately home, which was very interesting. And I, you know, I don't know why, I mean, I visited there before, but it felt like I was able to communicate on the same wavelength to a lot of people in the same humor. And they finally got my humor and it felt really, really wonderful. And I still say to this day, if, you know, if I had to, if I had to dream and say what I would want, I would love someplace, sometime. You know, either have a studio there or, you know, have projects there, a reason to be there and a home there. And I, I, I would love it. I really love London. So that's quite the uh, citizen of the world path yeah. <laughs> you've taken. Um, so going, coming back to, circling back to California, what do you like about this place? Mm. Or maybe Los Angeles, if you want to speak to that a little more. Yeah, Los Angeles, okay, what I, what I love about it, or in general, California, first of all, everybody's going to say it's the weather, you know, obviously, you know. I just came back from Tokyo a couple of days ago just landing in LA and I used to never get in, in, enthused by this, but seeing the blue sky and sun was like just an instant smile on my face. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, you know, I finally feel at home as we are in my home, you know, because I feel grounded. I feel like I've made my mark in this city and I've started to feel that it's my city and it never was my city. Mm -hmm. uh, and growing up, I was socially awkward in this place. Um, but what I love is the ability that we have, because it's such a young city, we have the ability to actually make it. So stop complaining. You know, when I tell people, oh, oh, I hate it, it's ugly. So make it pretty. So do something, you know, and, and it could be as simple as, or if you're a graphic designer, okay, so why don't you get on the board to make better signage for the city, you know, banners for the city, things like that. Uh, even the, the buses, they could be prettier, you know, so be active about it. There's ways to do that. Um, I'm also, I love to see the evolution of the city. If you live in a place like New York, even, 
there's already has it's all made you know mm-hmm. it's in, in the way i say it it's like uh, an onion you know when you have its layers la is really on its first it's the second skin it's only the first time now saying you know what maybe we need to demolish this building and maybe we need to have a subway through here mm-hmm. and it's exciting to see that mm-hmm. and it's exciting to be a part of that and to make that opportunity so yeah i want to be able to do that to the city whereas if i were in new york i'll be doing interiors and the chance of me doing something that will actually give back is minimal. Mm-hmm. Even in a place like London, you know, like what can you do? And me in, in LA or even San Francisco, you can't do what you could do as the same as you can in Los Angeles. So in a few decades you've been here, how would you describe that evolution of the Wow, city? it's changed so much, just even in the last decade. Uh, a decade ago, even uh, the hospitality world was absolute crap. You know, the restaurateurs didn't take food the same way. You couldn't find really great restaurants, there were a few. Now they're popping up everywhere. Uh, there's great coffee. There's great uh, pastries. These, all this did not exist before. Uh, great bars. Uh, all the stores that are opening up here. You know, we used to be the last city to get an international brand. Now we could be the first. And we have our own brands. Mm-hmm. And they're all home-rooted here. And, you know, I, I'm working with them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I designed last year uh, RTA, Road to Awe, which we did their clothing store. Now we're doing a second, a second uh, location. We did uh, coffee for Sasquatch. And hopefully that, you know, we're pushing that to do more and it's been super successful. And just to be able to be able to create that vibe is so awesome. And to be able to be a part of that is so awesome. Mm-hmm. And I love that about LA. So how much, um, compared to other cultures or cities, how much uh, um, is LA more conducive to maybe taking risks and taking chances? So much more. This is, you know, and this is what I say. It, okay, so uh, let's look at Western Hemisphere. Okay, so if you look at it from uh, Los Angeles on the west, on the east, uh, let's go to Europe, the old world, and in the middle you have New York. Let's think about it. You have a seesaw or a balance or a pendulum. New York mm-hmm. is is the gateway between the two, mm-hmm. uh, with Los Angeles being the new world of the wild west. Uh, we haven't figured things out, and we're letting everything go wild. You know. So that's the same circumstance that I said right at the beginning of the interview about my first project in Venice Beach. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's possible anywhere else in the world that a client would just take a chance on somebody young and fresh and actually think that that's positive. You know, to her, that was so cool. That was, I'm going to use the newest guy and I'm going to invest in him and make his career. And when, you know, when it's all said and done, I'm going to be able to be able to say that I put him on the map and I had his first house. You know, mm-hmm. that's incredible. Nobody in New York is doing that. And forget it in London. Mm-hmm. In London, all my friends, you know how many years it took them to even realize that I opened up my own office? They're like, oh, so who are you apprenticing for? And how? I'm like, no, this is my own gig. <laughs> and so, yeah, I absolutely think Los Angeles is special. It's very special. And now I have a new client that we're working with. And, you know, he's enthralled by the fact that I'm still, in quotes, young. And like, oh, he's a rising star. Let's work with him. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's freaking great. So speaking of risk, what's, what would be the biggest risk you've ever taken or maybe one or two or three of them? Well, you know, risks were different when I started. Like, so for example, when I opened up the season strong showroom, my old boss looked at me and he said, are you nuts? That's a risky, like, why would you do all those things? We, we played with a lot of materials, a lot of building technologies and I had nothing to lose. You know, I didn't have an office. My insurance policy didn't exist. Now everything has changed. But we, we did a lot, a lot of different things in that, off, in that space of, I think it's like 10,000 square feet. We, we pushed a lot of buttons. Um, now, I think maybe the biggest risk is uh, the bridge house. You know, it's a project that we're building on our own. And, and, I mean, we, we're working in cooperation with Moda Construction, but building it for ourselves, right? Building it for DBA. 
in putting that forth. Uh, that's that's a huge risk uh, monetarily, and also we are uh, using new technologies to build, which haven't been proven yet uh, in Los Angeles, right? So we're using a system from Canada, from Quebec, called uh, Bone Structure, mm -hmm. and this system is uh, a whole new way of building. It's not your typical uh, framed wood or steel house. It's an all steel construction using pre-made components that are specifically laser cut for you and basically built like a Lego set or an Erector set. Nobody's done this in Los Angeles before and we're the first and that was a risk. And it's a whole house based on this system um, and it's fun. But you know, a lot of times when people say like, wow, you took a risk, I don't even, it's, I'm blind to risks in a way <laughs> and it's very strange. Uh, so that particular project, the Bridge House, how is it a risk? You said it's financially a risk, but what else is, is risk? We didn't know we were going to get this thing freaking permitted. Mm. You know, so when we, when we took the whole system, we didn't know how the Department of Building and Safety is going to look at this system. What are they going to do? What is, what is the inspector going to do when he sees this thing? It's, it's uh, built completely differently. It's, not, it's nothing that you, they've ever seen. So what are they going to make us do? We didn't know. Mm -hmm. So even though you get it permitted, so the, the first step was, okay, let's get it permitted. And that, by doing that, it means that you've invested into your whole design around one system of parts and, you know, move that forward. Then you get it permitted. And then all of a sudden an inspector comes to the site and he, you don't know how they're going to react to this, but it's everything, everything has been positive, you know, and it's been a, a great, in quotes, risk. And it was well worth everything that we've done. Mm -hmm. So we talked about risk. I want to talk about what I consider the other side of the coin, okay. failures. Yes. What are your biggest failures? Well, <laughs> maybe I think too lofty of myself, but uh, I don't know what my biggest failures are. Um, you know, maybe one of the realizations that I had at one point in one project that we designed, we had this wall and I covered it up with uh, fabric and it was easily removable and the client removed it. And to me, that was a failure. Like, oh God, you ruined the whole space. All of a sudden it was uh, acoustically unsound, you know, vibrant and echoey. And then the client was wondering why it's doing that. So that taught me something about uh, something that's easily removed. It very much could become a failure. So, you know, that to me, that project is a failure because it hasn't lived on in its, its true essence and mm -hmm. it sucks. And so any other lessons that you've learned from messing up or... Being uh, the best thing, uh, the best lesson I've learned was a few years ago, I think. And uh, the client taught me to take full responsibility. Okay, don't try to, you know, push it under the rug or hide it or do anything. Just really confront somebody, anybody. If it's your client, your boss, your friend, colleague, doesn't matter what. Just come up to them and say, I am at fault. I am sorry. I did this wrong. Let me take responsibility and correct it. It's the best thing you could do, and it's so much quicker than trying to be like, no, but yes, I didn't see it, and blah, blah, blah. It's crap. Nobody wants to hear this. Just take responsibility. And I hate it also, like, if I have, like, an employee that starts doing all these circles, I'm not going to fire you because you made a mistake. You know, that's not going to happen. But if, I will get really frustrated if you just don't accept the fact that you did make a mistake. And mm -hmm. are you going to learn from it? Because I think also by accepting it, then you won't do it again. You'll learn from that. Mm -hmm. How has that changed uh, your practice to learning to take full responsibility? For I'm a lot more humble. I'm a lot more uh, human. I can realize that there are mistakes being made and that anybody can make a mistake. And you're not going to fall off the face of the earth if you make a mistake. I was brought up in such a way that I felt like any mistake was vital. You know, any mistake that you did, you, you're, 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 you're out, you're toast. That's mm -hmm. it. And so I think it's made me a lot more compassionate towards, towards conditions. 
And uh, it's actually like what I would like to say is, you know, what I missed before is in terms of design, I call it uh, empathetic design is what DBA does. And we basically, through understandings of our client and the atmosphere, empathize and respond. And that's our first base. Second would be layering over the DBA design language. But that first part is super, super vital. It is very important, in my opinion. And I think most of the most talented architects know how to do it to an extent um, because the projects have to fit the client. Right? They Absolutely. have to respond to what, who the client is and how they live or how they use the space and being empathetic is the shortest route. The shortest. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah, I like that. No, if you can't do that, I think you've failed. And I've seen that, you know, I've seen it like through trying to force feed somebody something that they don't want. You've lost all respect and you're done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm very glad to hear that. It (laughs) makes a lot of sense. Um, Can you talk a little bit about creativity and how that plays out in your life? you know, you know, somebody, if somebody will ask me, for example, how did you come up with that idea? And the answer is um, it, many different ways, and I don't know how, in essence. But it's a response, and it goes back to what we just talked about, empathetic design. So it will come back to what did somebody say or do or feel, and that's how I responded to that particular situation. And that's how my creativity uh, really goes. And so I've never... You can't put me in a white room and expect me to write a song. You can't put me in a white room and expect me to uh, design a car, paint, or design a house. Like, I need to be at that place and to creatively respond. Mm-hmm. And that, that's how creativity, but it, re- it really comes, a lot of it comes uh, from travel. You know, so I like to travel a lot, a lot, a lot, and to get out there. And so I'm not shy about, you know, getting in a car or a plane, whatever the hell it is, and, uh, to invest into that. And some of my best designs are inspired by something that I've seen. And I could tell you a lot of times it would be like taking the scale. I like to play a lot with scale. So something that I've seen that's five inches tall, mm-hmm. I'll make it five feet tall. Mm-hmm. And it's, oh, it's a totally different thing. But being able to do that is really fun. So do you have um, a way to keep your creativity alive, a creative process, something that you do that will keep you going? My friends. I think that's it. I mean, I, I think I'm inspired by people that I'm around and uh, things that make me happy. Um, and honestly, I think, uh, you know, I, I can't discount the fact that I have been very, very, very fortunate to be able to build my dreams, right? So, like, I, I could take whatever I put on pen and paper and my computer and end up seeing it in the real world. And I think that gets me going all mm-hmm. the time and being able to say, oh my God that became real. I recently did like a, a, a school uh, presentation, a, a talk, and it was called From Rendering to Reality. And that brought a lot of humbleness to me to realize it was a, closing a decade in a way, saying, wow, these are all these different designs that I showed a client to rendering, and we waited months and years, and all of a sudden it's built. It's incredible. Yeah, sometimes it takes um, some external force to make us realize how much we've accomplished. Right? Unbelievably so. Yeah, yeah. So is there a, an accomplishment that you're the most proud of so far? And that goes for career and personal. No, I was going to say personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, career, somebody else could judge. I could judge myself, and that's how I feel at least. And, and I think that's um, my calmness over the years. I feel a lot more calm and calm in being who I am and accepting who I am. And 
say that lightly, like take it, take it or leave it. Because mm-hmm. I definitely, as I said, about like the same thing about like empathy. I'm very empathetic towards people. At the same time, I don't let other people ruin me. You know, so if you don't like me and this is all of me, I'm going to always be me. Uh, and so you don't like it. You know what? You don't deserve to be in my life and I don't deserve to be in your life. And that's fine. That calmness also does play in when I deal with clients and when I deal with employees and when I deal with contractors and city people. I just don't respond nearly as quickly as I used to. I used to get an email, be like, oh my God, what did she say? How do I get connected to this? What did he do? And I'll be like, I need to find back the email. Now I just kind of like sit there and let it ride. And uh, I never thought that's possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like a hippie kind of a vibe. And I'm not a hippie, but you know, it's, it feels great. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. It's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> I've, I've come to similar conclusions myself and it, it dramatically lowers the amount of stress and worry mm-hmm. and all that other shit that we all have to deal with, right? It makes life a lot easier. We do, yeah. And it's all bullshit. And, and you know, so like, let it go. So we're, we're coming on to the last couple of questions here. Um, the next one, it's a bit of a visioning exercise. Okay. I'd like you to picture yourself on your deathbed. So hopefully many, many years <laughs> from now. And think about the legacy you would want to have left behind. What would that be? I would want people to remember the jokes, you know, things that have made people smile. And that means, you know, if, if somebody has known me on a personal level, seen my lightheartedness mixed with my seriousness, right? And I think that's fun. But also, on, you know, on a professional side, because that's the part that's going to live on, hopefully, to many, many years, the people that don't know me, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to feel better in a space that we've designed and I've put my finger on, you know, so to say, okay, you know what, I'm comfortable here and this place makes me happy. Uh, and I've seen some of my, you know, my clients already respond to that saying, I don't want to leave. I don't need to go to the spot. I don't need to go anywhere. I, I have my place here right now. I would want it. I would want that, you know, I would want to do that in a much bigger world and bigger sense. As I said, you know, we don't want to touch the civic and that's why I want to do this. It, it, it's, uh, it might be an ego thing, you know, you could say, hey, you know, well, why do you want to touch so many people? But I also feel like I could do it really well. And I think that um, I want people to have a better built environment. Mm-hmm. And I want that to live on, you know, and I don't want to see paper mache projects that, you know, fall apart within 10 years. One of my, my hopes is that, you know, when I talk too, is that, and this is a dream, is that I'll be in a history book. You know, I hope that one day a kid in college, in high school, whatever, will be reading about a project even, if it, even if it's not about me, it's, a, it's about a project that we've done or the pedagogy and how we developed. Or I would love somebody to remember working for DBA mm-hmm. and saying that, you know what, DBA was a great place to work. It wasn't like working for all these other architecture firms. They kept normal hours. They were kind. And I want that legacy. You know, one of my, one of my heroes is Steve Jobs and I can't, I can't stand him also <laughs> because of how he treated people and what he did. And, and the same thing as if we go back, you know, I'll step back to the Beatles and, you know, John Lennon, he was a freaking asshole, you know, and the things that he did weren't kind, you know, his public image was very much so. I would want to be remembered exactly for the opposite, you know, and I hope, and I hope that is what will happen. That's a great answer. So the last question, I think I know the answer, but I'm still going to ask. Okay. Stones or Beatles? The Beatles, without a doubt. Yeah, I just had a conversation with this about in, uh, in the office a couple of days ago. I mean, one is, you know, R&B standards again and again, not profound lyrics, and those are the stones, and they're great, and we just listen to a bunch of stuff in the 
the call the London years, everything from like, you know, mid sixties to late sixties, wonderful. And it's great. And it's fun, but they followed, you know, they didn't create everything that they did. And you can, and I took a, you know, I took a history course of, uh, of classic rock and you could see like, okay, so one song was written by the Beatles six months later, the same thing happens with the stones. Mm -hmm. They're great, but they're not the leaders. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing as I would say, you know, you know, if somebody looks at, Apple products versus some other ones. Maybe Apple's not the same way anymore, but they're pushing those limits. They're trying those things and they might have failed. And you know, you go back to uh, the Beatles had the, the Magical Mystery Tour, which at the time was a huge failure. Five years later, when everybody got access to color TVs, they're like, huh, that was good. Wait a minute, that was great. You know, and I go back to, the, you compare it to like the Apple uh, iPhones when they removed the jack for the headphones. They're crazy, this doesn't make sense. They're nuts. All of a sudden, you have the Google phones that don't have that either. Mm -hmm. That change needed to happen. And people forget, just it's funny with Apple because they've done it many times over yes. the years. When the iMac came out, there was no, um, no uh, floppy, floppy disk. disk. Yeah. And then they got rid of the CD player. And yeah. So and it's something that I thought upon too. Don't hold things so precious. Mm -hmm. I used to have a girlfriend that told me that, you know, and she would leave the, uh, the toothpaste open and things like that. I'm like, ah, you're killing me. She's like, it's not precious. Like none of this is precious. These are items and like, let it go. And the same thing goes for design. You don't know. Like, so we recently designed this project for somebody and we put everything forward and we went crazy and they looked at it and they're like, oh my God, what have you done? You know, they didn't know how to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, you know, it was teaching them, oh, this is what this is. This is what this. We've never seen this in the DBA portfolio. It looks different. It's a departure. And uh, let's see how, you know, it moves forward. But yeah, letting things go. Yeah. Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. Well, thanks, Dan. It's been a great interview. Well, thanks thank for you. This has been awesome. In your beautiful house, and hope to continue conversation. We will. Thank you. Hey again, Arno here. If you like this interview, be sure to give us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio, edited by Ryan Akhtari, with music by Bounce Trio. To be notified of upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at revelator underscore TO or sign up for our newsletter on our website at rvltr.studio. Keep on supporting creativity and never stop kicking fear in the nuts. Till next time, ciao.